Smarties, you are in for a real treat. Today, we welcome clinical psychologist Dr. Donna Henderson to the podcast. We initially invited Donna to the podcast to talk about autism and how it can present differently in girls. We never expected the conversation to go in the wide-ranging way that it did, and so we decided to split our time together with her into two episodes. Today, you'll hear her introduce herself, talk about a diagnosis and what does it give students and families. We'll talk about how the autism diagnosis has shifted over the years, why there are so many girls who are misdiagnosed, and what the difference is between ADHD and autism in girls. Next week, we walk through talking about the diagnosis with families and students, how autism learners process information, that conversation blew our mind, and framing the autism diagnosis for families. She gives us a ton of juicy stuff, Smarties, and Steph and I are both going to go back and listen to this episode once it airs because we still need to process this with you. So... If you are interested in hearing our extended conversation, which will come out next week, we continue the conversation with Dr. Donna Henderson on Patreon. The best way to support our podcast is with a small monthly donation of $5 a month, and it supports the work that we do here on the podcast. And as a thank you, we offer up freebies and extended conversations that we don't release on the podcast. You can join us over on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. And over on Patreon next week, we talk about the best ways and best practices to work with autistic learners, a really cool acronym for anxiety and keeping kids out of fight or flight and pacing. So let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 141 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are really excited really excited to have clinical psychologist, Dr. Donna Henderson with us. Hi, Donna. Hi, Steph. Hi, Rachel. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. We're excited to have you here. Thanks so much for saying yes to the invitation to join us today. We're very excited about this conversation. Oh, I'm excited to be here. It's an important one. Yeah. It is. So before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do and who you do it for? Sure. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist, but really I like to think of myself as being a detective, trying to solve the mystery of what's getting in someone's way in their life. I'm in a general neuropsychology practice. I see kids, adolescents, and adults. And I don't just see kids or adults with autism. I didn't particularly train to become an autism specialist. And in fact, I actually avoided autism work for a huge chunk of my career. I was sort of intimidated by it, as I think a lot of clinicians are. And eventually I realized that it's just not possible to avoid autism because there are so many people with sort of this subtle presentation of autism where, you know, their parents, their prior clinicians don't know that they're autistic, and then they show up unexpectedly in our offices, and we need to be prepared for that. So 
I realized it's probably about 10 years ago and I started studying autism and autism assessment and I found out that I absolutely love it and I love talking about it. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you today. Oh, I love that story. Just happen upon it. And, you know, we need people in the world like you that know and are excited about it. I'm sure you've helped a lot of people and, you know, just being on this podcast, I'm sitting here as your student. I can't wait to learn. Yeah, we're ready to learn. (laughs) And so before we dig into the crux of what we wanted to talk about when it came to autism, can you talk briefly about what the autism diagnosis is now and how it has maybe shifted in the past several years? Sure. It shifted a lot over the past few decades, really. You know, our understanding of autism keeps evolving. So if you had asked me what autism is when I was, say, in high school 40 years ago, I probably wouldn't have even heard of it. It was around, of course, back then, but most people wouldn't have heard of it. If you had asked me maybe 30 years ago when I was in graduate school, I probably would have talked about Rain Man, right? Somebody who was mm-hmm. probably white and male and overtly odd and didn't make eye contact and needed a lot of supervision. And I think a lot of the people in the general population still think that's what autism is. They're sort of stuck at that point, right? But maybe about 20 years ago, at least for me, I added Asperger's into that understanding. People who have average to well above average intelligence and less obvious autistic traits. But I still would have had a stereotypical view of autism. It still probably would have been a white male. And it would have been somebody who was sort of a nerdy, quirky genius like Sheldon on Big Bang Theory. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people are stuck there with that understanding of autism, too. And I think that includes a lot of healthcare professionals and educators, you know, really wonderful healthcare professionals and educators who still have that sort of outdated view of what autism is. But now we know there's also a female phenotype of autism, which frankly, a lot of men can have as well, but you know, it's more common in females. And this is an even more subtle presentation. So these are individuals who don't fit at all with our stereotypical idea of what autism is, but they are autistic. So our understanding of autism keeps expanding and becoming wider and more varied. It's a huge heterogeneous group of people, when you think about it, it's close to 2% of the population. So in the world, that's something like 140 million people. It's a lot of people. It's hard to lump them all together for one definition or one description. Yeah. Well, have you seen The Good Doctor? I have not. So that's probably the stereotypical... The most recent. You know, being the genius that's young and a doctor and solves these unbelievable cases that nobody else can because of the way he sees it and whatnot. But obviously in our practices, we see kids of all different ages and types and what's going on with them. And there's so many different ways that it presents and it's evolving. And I think it's also one of those things where people think it's either all or none. And there's no spectrum of it. No nuance. Yeah. Even though it's the autism spectrum, right? And I think a lot of parents probably feel like that's a curse of my child is not going to be successful or, you know, all of those things. And so I really am excited that you are here to talk about it. Also, our audience, they don't stay in that fixed mindset. 
area of thinking. Yeah, because people are scared of it. They don't realize that you can be autistic and be well-educated and be in a happy marriage and be a wonderful parent and have an interesting job and contribute to the world and be perfectly happy. Like all of these things are possible and are not ruled out just because you're autistic. And that's so important for people to know, right. to make it less scary. And, and frankly, a lot of clinicians and educators are scared too. And so that's one of the reasons they sort of avoid going there with parents when they have some concerns about kids. Yeah, if we can make it more just, you know, we have brown hair, we can be successful because we have brown hair. Right. Mm-hmm. All three of us happen to have brown hair, so that's what I'm saying. <laughs> we do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into this for a second. A lot of parents might suspect or have questions, and let's talk about diagnosis. They're either suspecting and want it, or they avoid it at all costs. And I'll add into that, it's very clear if the parent really wants to know or really doesn't want to know Mm -hmm. based off which clinician they go to. Mm -hmm. You sort of get tracked to the clinician who's going to approach you in the way that you need to hear information. Mm -hmm. It's very true. To clarify that, some people really want the diagnosis because they can get services. Interventions. Yeah, that they need. And some people just don't because they're afraid. I get it. So a diagnosis, do you need one? And what does it give you? As far as diagnosis goes, I want to address it first in theory, and then I'll answer your question on a very practical level. So we probably should talk for a minute about the neurodiversity model, which holds that autism is simply part of human biodiversity, which is like being left-handed. I'm left-handed. Me too. All right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And we lefties were very pathologized in the past, right? Yes. You know, in my grandfather's day, it was considered you were sinister if you were left-handed. There was something downright evil about you, right? Get you to use the other hand or tie it behind your back, right? Right. Like to actually go against your brain wiring, which is also what we've done to autistic kids, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to get them to stop stimming or whatever. Now being left-handed, we're not shamed and blamed anymore, but it's still harder to be left-handed because it's a right-handed world, right? It really is. You know, being born with an autistic brain is not a problem in and of itself, except that you're born into a world that is designed by and for non-autistic people, and you're being forced to live in that world, and that is incredibly stressful. Love that you just said that because when I think about growing up and being left-handed, I would get really bad marks in writing and, you know, I don't want to get into left-handedness, but like having the back of my hand be covered in ink and it being a problem, it just, nobody else understood. Yeah. So taking that step back because what in your life is different about you and really putting that into perspective is amazing. I think it's important to think about it that way, because again, this is a huge group of people and there are a lot of autistic people who need a ton of support, but there are also a lot of autistic people who don't, and they simply have a different kind of brain and they're just stressed out by living in a world that wasn't designed for them. And so it's important to think about it that way when we talk about diagnosis, because not everybody who's autistic needs a diagnosis, right? Mm. If you happen to have an autistic brain, but you're doing fine. You're happy. You don't have an anxiety disorder. You have whatever relationships you want to have. 
you're able to be productive to the level you want to be productive, then you don't necessarily need a diagnosis. So I think that's an important point to make. I think it's also important to talk about language for a minute, because in the neurodiversity model, there's sort of a strong preference to refer to people as autistic people rather than people with autism. And that's a relatively new shift. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a divide in the autism community. Well, a big divide in the autism community (laughs) about what language to use, where historically person-first language has been the preference of a lot of parents of kids who have a severe presentation of autism, right? To put the person first, to say this is a kid with autism. But there are a lot of people who are autistic themselves that really see it less as a disease and more as a trait and as a meaningful, integral part of who they are. So they strongly prefer autistic person rather than person with autism. Like I would say, I'm a left-handed person, not a person with left-handedness, or I'm a white woman, not a woman who's white. You know, it's just part of who you are. It makes so much sense. Yeah. Whatever suits everybody. Mm. Yeah. So as far as the benefits of diagnosis, to my mind, the biggest benefit by far is that it changes the narrative, right? It changes the narrative for the individual, for the family, for the school, for clinicians who are working with that person. And it gets rid of labels that are at best inaccurate Mm -hmm. and at worst really judgmental and guide intervention in the wrong direction. So, you know, these kids can be misdiagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder or bipolar disorder, or just, you know, people can call them rude or selfish or stubborn or weird. You've, You've heard all these judgmental terms. And once they get the diagnosis of autism, that changes everything. And most importantly, it changes the narrative inside their head. And of course, the other benefits to diagnosis are things like, you know, opening up legal supports like accommodations in school and and guiding intervention. I'd love for us to talk sort of about girls in particular Mm -hmm. who have autism, because like you said, I think the conception is it's white, it's male. And I think a lot of the DSM is written for the white man. Yeah. Yep. With the perspective of that's what's normal and everything is compared against that. But I would love for you to talk about how girls present differently. And then I have a lot more questions because just to be transparent sort of with our audience, this is a personal mission to get you on the podcast because I've had quite a few girls in the practice who I've been working with for a long time who were diagnosed initially with ADHD inattentive primarily. And through another assessment, we discover all these sort of little pieces that we didn't put together, which actually led to an autism diagnosis. Initially, my reaction was like, this makes no sense. And then I read the report and I was like, well, this is why you bring in an outside pair of eyes, fresh eyes to look at the situation because I was too in it and I didn't know enough. Yeah. So can you share a little bit about how girls present? Sure. Autistic girls can present differently from autistic boys and they particularly present differently from how most people think of autism. So I'll, I'll put the differences into two major categories. One is the sort of social and communication challenges. And generally speaking, autistic girls have much, much better functional social behavior than autistic boys. So when they're young, 
The differences in play are much more subtle. They tend to engage more in pretend play. They tend to blend in a lot more on the playground. So for instance, there have been studies that show that autistic boys, if you're watching from the edge of the playground, autistic boys are more obviously loners, whereas autistic girls seem like they're integrated into groups and that they're playing with people. You have to really get up close and personal to see that they're not truly integrating. And then as girls mature, they have better nonverbal. So they tend to have better eye contact, better body language, better voice intonation, especially when they're with adults. So when they're working with their educational therapists or when they're interacting one-on-one with a psychologist, they particularly present well. They have better basic social niceties than the boys. So just greetings and saying please and thank you and goodbye and all those basics. But they're more socially engaged. They tend to be chattier and more engaged with people. They're less likely to be loners and more likely to play maybe with younger kids, for instance. Girls tend to camouflage a lot more than boys do, and this is well into adulthood. And this all speaks to the importance of really getting at their inner experience of what it's like. It's not enough to observe their social behavior. You really have to talk to them about what it's like for them. So for instance, their eye contact might be great But if you ask them, what is eye contact like for you? They might say, it's super distracting, or I hate doing it. It drives me crazy. I have to remind myself constantly. I don't understand why everybody's always getting on me about eye contact. I've worked hard and I'm good at it now. All these kinds of things that non-autistic girls would not say. If you ask a non-autistic girl about eye contact, she'll be like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I make eye contact. Like, yeah. I don't tend to think about it. Back, it's so natural. Right? Exactly. So you really have to get at their experience, not just think about the behavior. I don't know if you guys do show notes mm-hmm. you know, on your website or whatever, but I'd be happy to send you a link. There's one particular TED Talk I really like because it's this young woman who is just all kinds of adorable and seems super social and wonderful and just talks about being autistic and and her subtle presentation. And she talks about how her autistic brother was diagnosed at age two and she was diagnosed at age 14. It's a great talk and really can help clinicians and educators understand you really can't just know, like you're not gonna just interact with this girl and know she's autistic. It's so much more subtle than that. So that's a big way they're different from boys. And the other big sort of category is in what we call restricted and repetitive behaviors. And there are four different types of restricted and repetitive behaviors. And research shows that girls are different from boys in all four of these categories. So for instance, one of the categories is restricted interests that are either atypical or intense. And a lot of people think about atypical interests. And that's sort of the stereotype, right? A boy who wants to talk about train schedules or, you know, has memorized every single aspect of World War II tanks, or, you know, just something that really jumps out at you as, hmm, never heard that before Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But with girls, what you tend to have are typical interests that are really, really, really intense. So you might have a girl who is just completely obsessed with K-pop or with dogs or with reading. Reading is actually a really big one or fan fiction or makeup, just all of these things that don't raise your eyebrows at all, except for the intensity of the interest. So that's a big difference. Inflexibility. So we all know that kids who are autistic tend to struggle to be flexible with 
boys, you know, in general, boys tend to externalize more, whereas girls tend to internalize more. So in general, boys who are autistic and rigid are going to have some behavioral problems, whereas with girls, they tend to internalize it and you can get whole new levels of perfectionism that you have not seen before. Just crazy perfectionism, a lot of rigid rule following, anxiety related to change. So they cope with the change and there's no behavioral problems, but there's a tremendous amount of anxiety. So that's another way it can look different. Hmm. So those are some examples of how girls look different. It's just so much more subtle. Oh, and the other thing that's probably important to say is the timeline can look really different because, you know, we're trained to think about the more the boy presentation, if you will, where it's pretty obvious by, you know, toddler years, preschool, that something's going on with this boy. But a lot of these autistic girls can do really, really well straight through most of elementary school. And they don't start to really noticeably struggle until girl world changes around fourth or fifth grade. And we all know girl world gets just completely nutty, right? Uh, it's rough. Yeah, it's rough. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, fourth or fifth grade, there's a shift in girl world and playing together and forming relationships starts to depend more on social chit chat, right? Yes. And so then the problems can start there because the social chit chat is hard. And then around sixth grade, it really gets nutty and you're in, living in a social minefield if you're a sixth or seventh grade girl. And so then they have to cope with that, which they're, they're just not equipped to do. And so a lot of times with these girls, parents will say there were no problems at all until fifth grade or sixth grade, none. And so everybody just rules out autism because that doesn't sound like what we think of autism, but you can't rule out autism with these girls. And I have found if you go back and do a really detailed developmental history, you'll see that the problems were there. They were just more subtle until she sort of reached her ceiling. Hmm. Well, I think this explains why there are so many girls who aren't diagnosed or misdiagnosed. But can you talk a little bit about the misdiagnosis that so often happens? Yeah. I mean, I see it literally almost every day now in my practice. It's just, it's hard. So because the girls present differently from what everybody thinks is autism, they fall through cracks. There are more cracks for them to fall through in every step of the diagnostic process. So let me walk you through sort of the diagnostic process and all the different cracks that there are for the girls to fall through. So first of all, who are the first people who can flag a kid to say, wait, something's going on with this kid? Parents or teachers, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking, you know, early teachers now. So these are people who are in the general population and they often think of autistic kids as overtly sort of disconnected or quirky or flapping or not making any eye contact, which is not going to be true of the girls. And so the research shows that parents and teachers are more concerned about autistic boys than similar girls during preschool. And also separately, that they're more likely to name autism if they are concerned. Hmm. So during preschool, a girl is less likely to get referred for an evaluation than a boy. And even if she's lucky enough to get referred, she's less likely to be referred to somebody who understands autism. So right away, a girl is at a huge disadvantage right there. 
Hmm. And then you get to clinician bias. And we clinicians have a lot of bias. We are more likely to classify boys as autistic than girls, even if they have the same level of symptoms, because so many of us are working with an outdated understanding of what autism is. So for instance, if a kid has social withdrawal, a boy is more likely to be called unresponsive and that's a red flag for autism. Whereas a girl would be more likely to be called shy. And that makes you think more of anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And if a boy is talking about train schedules, the clinician's going to think of autism. If the girl can't stop talking about K-pop, a clinician's not necessarily going to think of autism, right? Right. And frankly, we also have bias we have our own anxieties. A lot of clinicians still have a basic assumption that autism is categorically bad and they're scared of it. And they don't want to bring it up with the parents. And so there's, there's a lot of clinician bias there. And then in the evaluation process, there are a lot of problems too in that, let's see, there's diagnostic overshadowing. So that means that if somebody has a diagnosis, we tend to blame all their challenges on the diagnosis they already have. And statistically speaking, these girls are likely to die, get diagnosed with either ADHD or anxiety or both first. Mm -hmm. And then everybody says, well, sure, she has social problems because she has ADHD. Or yeah, she has social problems because she has social anxiety. And for some girls, that's true. But for other girls, there's something underlying the social anxiety, right? And there's something more than the ADHD. And so there's that diagnostic overshadowing piece that's a bigger problem for the girls than for the boys. And then the evaluation process itself has just so many cracks for the girls to fall through because there's an over-reliance on social cognition tests, which historically are made more for boys and they're not super sensitive in general. They're definitely not sensitive for smart girls, right? Girls with average to well above average intelligence. And that goes for the rating scales too, the way the items are written, the norms. Now there are some new tests and rating scales that are much more sensitive and that I think are really great, but you know, they're relatively new. Wow. And not everybody uses them or has them or owns them or, you know, Exactly. So, I mean, these are just some of the cracks that girls can fall through. Wow. You know, there are probably more, but you see that there are a lot. It's the kids that fall through the cracks in school too. They're not behavioral. You know, they can just get by and those cracks can be so detrimental. And I love that you bring that up with all the steps because there's a lot of steps to get through too, right? There's a lot of parents that give up because trying to understand and trying to figure out and getting to the bottom of it. When your pediatrician says there's nothing wrong, and when you bring her to a psychologist who says there's nothing wrong, or it's just anxiety, and then your teacher says there's nothing wrong, and you've been trying and trying. And I hear this story over and over and over again from 100%. these parents who are saying, I know something's going on here. I don't know what it is. It's just... It's so heartbreaking. And people ask me all the time, isn't it hard to tell parents that their kid is autistic? And I say, no, it's not even remotely hard because the kind of parents I get. It's a relief. That's exactly it. It's such a relief. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a swirl of emotions, but relief is one of them. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I taught pre-K for several years. And so as you were talking about observing play, 
I'm like flashing back in my mind to something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is that teachers' eyes go to the boys who are behavioral or the girls who are behavioral because that's what's disrupting the daily goings-on within the classroom. I will say, I think that the school that I taught at was very good at talking about girls in play as well. We were talking about it a lot in the language of she's a leader, she's a follower, we'd like to see her assert herself, like that type of stuff were the conversations and we would facilitate that sort of play to help teach them how to take a step back or take a step forward. But, you know, I was quite young when I was teaching preschool and even at that point, I was very careful about the language that I was using because I was never going to call a girl who was leader bossy. We never called girls shy. We were careful. Now, parents would and parents will, but the language that you were sort of sharing and the way we talk about girls, it's a really, really important thing to be aware of. Right. We have to be able to have frank conversations too, because if a girl is bossy all the time, and I know this is not what you were saying, but I've seen, you know, particularly private schools do this. You know, if we just keep saying she's a leader, she's a leader, but really she's bossy. It's not fair to the girl. It's not fair to the parents totally because agree. sooner or later it's going to hit the fan. And this poor girl is going to have social problems that might've been avoidable. Right. So we have to be able to have frank conversations. Absolutely. Same with the boys. We have to be able to label it that, but this is also nuanced. Yes. It's very nuanced. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the difference between ADHD and autism in girls? I don't know that I would differentiate it by gender, but ADHD and autism are both brain differences. Autism at its core is simply having a different kind of brain, and same with ADHD. And they both can present in different ways with varying levels of severity. So you can have either that's more subtle or more severe. They both can result in executive functioning problems. The, the basic difference is that the core of ADHD is a problem with attention and self-regulation. And kids with ADHD might have social issues resulting from that. So for instance, if you're a girl and you're impulsive and you blurt things out or you can't keep a secret, you're likely to have some social problems because of that. But many kids with ADHD don't have any social challenges at all. Social challenges are not a core feature of ADHD as we define it. But autistic people do have a behavioral presentation with core social challenges. Social challenges have to be present and they have to be significant by our current DSM definition. If someone has ADHD, they're not likely to be autistic. But if someone is autistic, they're fairly likely to also have ADHD. Hmm. That's a common piece of it. How do you tease that out with the misdiagnosis? I mean, like the girls that, you know, that it's only ADHD and that was the first diagnosis they got. Right. And later it's autism. Yeah. There are specific criteria. There's seven core criteria for autism. You don't have to meet all seven, but you have to meet the, there are three social criteria and you have to meet all three. And there are four repetitive restricted criteria, and you have to meet two of the four. And whether or not a girl has ADHD, if she meets all of the criteria for autism, she meets all of the criteria for autism. 
there's nothing to sort out there. It's just that, you know, she also happens to have inattention as part of her picture. But kids who have ADHD aren't going to meet all of the criteria for autism. They just aren't. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It does make sense. But I'm just sitting here thinking and wondering, you know, with so many clinicians, not their fault, scared of it or not trained and what to look for and whatnot, if they're not doing the test at all, because they don't suspect it, then is it one of those things where, I mean, and this is a bigger philosophical question, but should we be testing for that as often as we're testing for ADHD? No, I think only if there are certain red flags, but I do think we need to be looking for it a lot more than we are, especially Mm -hmm. with the girls. You know, clinicians need to sort of hit the pause button when they see certain red flags and at least think, is it possible that I need to look for autism in this kid? right? If a kid has persistent anxiety or depression, you know, there have been efforts at treatment and they're not getting better. It's a girl with an eating disorder. If there are social problems, we can't just assume that it's ADHD. Now, of course, you have to look at context always too, because let's say this is a good example. If a kid is in first grade and she's calling out a lot in class, then I would probably do an ADHD eval if there's no social concerns. And if she has ADHD, I would say, okay, she's calling out in class because she's impulsive. She has poor impulse control. Let's treat the ADHD and and see how that goes, right? But if a kid is in 11th grade and she doesn't have impulsivity or she's successfully on a stimulant, so the impulsivity is controlled and she's calling out in class, I've seen so many people say, well, she calls out in class because she's impulsive, but no, not if she's in 11th grade Mm -hmm. and we're not seeing like wild impulsivity everywhere else on her profile, you know, either because she doesn't have it or because she's well-controlled on a stimulant. Then we have to think there's another reason she's calling out in class, making these random comments in class. And I see that one all the time. I'm just taking it in. Hmm. Because, you know, sometimes we hear, well, medicine just doesn't work on my kid. And that's true sometimes. But if a kid has straight up ADHD and no autism, about 85% of those kids should do well on a stimulant. Like the overwhelming majority, they, you know, we can find a stimulant that will work pretty well for them. So if a kid has tried lots and lots of stimulants and none of them work well, It's certainly possible they just have ADHD and they don't respond to stimulants. That's a small group of kids, but they do exist. But it's also possible if they are having social problems or anxiety that we should take a look at autism. Because we also know that kids with autism have a much more varied response to stimulants and they have much bigger problems with the side effects. They're really sensitive because they have sensitive bodies in general. Yeah, I'm thinking back in my practice to the girls who we discovered over the course of our relationship that it wasn't ADHD, it was in fact an autism diagnosis. None of them responded to or liked the medication. Yeah, that's really, really common. They just have very sensitive bodies, sensitive GI systems. It's another red flag for me if somebody's had just nonstop GI problems. And, you know, by seventh grade, they have a diagnosis of IBS or they have to constantly take medication for constipation by the time they're eight years old. Now, of course, just because a kid has GI problems doesn't mean they're autistic, obviously. But it's just one more thing when you're looking at a kid and you're looking at the whole picture 
that's definitely sort of one piece of the puzzle that I would think about. I'm curious about, in general, the presentation of autism in children who are twins. Is that something that you see a lot? Sure, absolutely. I've seen twins where both have autism. I've seen twins where one is autistic. What I think is important when we're talking about girls and the subtle presentation of autism with twins is that being a twin can cover it up if you're the same gender, right? Because the twin who's you know more socially skilled is going to just help out the twin who's less socially skilled. And that really does make it harder to sort through. Huh. I'm fascinated by this eating disorder part too, because that never even crossed my mind. And now it makes so much sense. You want to say how it makes sense? There's a couple of things that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how impulsivity, whether it's controlled or not controlled, if they're on medication, also feelings of comfort when they can't find something that's comforting. It's almost another form of self-stimulation too. Self-soothing. All of the above. And there's a few more pieces too. I agree with everything you said, but there can be real rigid black and white thinking. Yeah. Right. And that remember that perfectionism. And so if you're talking about, you know, anorexia, there's there's a real perfectionism piece there, right? Uh-huh. Yes. So 100%. That's a big piece for some of these girls. Donna, thank you so much for all the information that you've already given us. I can't wait for our audience to tune in next week and hear the rest of our conversation. And I can just tell everybody that right now you're going to want to listen to the second part of this episode because it is life-changing, I think. Blew our minds. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Donna. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week.